0: On air, online, on digital. digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: Coming up today, a glut of blueberries on the market for one organic Tasmanian grower.
2: Usually, you know, we just send all our fruit over there and they can just take as much as we can send, but at the moment we're sort of getting pallets of fruit packed up and ready to go and we're holding them for a a couple of days or yeah, even sometimes a few more just to wait and see where we're going to send them.
1: And a keen young competitor ready for the mountain cattlemen's get together this weekend.
3: Um, so we've got a championship held tomorrow on the Saturday. Um, there's four sections of it. So you've got the whip crack, you've got the cow handling, you've got the um, time trial, and the handy stock horse.
1: Yeah, plenty of things happening. It's back after a couple of years of no get together. The Tasmanian Mountain Cattleman's three-day events, plus in a moment the glut of blueberries and how one organic Tasmanian grower is coping. Good day, Tony, with you on this Friday, where we also look at the future of the seaweed industry in Australia, undergoing a big expansion, and we'll look at the unique shoes made from wool. Also, Richard Bailey will be along to check the livestock markets, both here and on the mainland. And a check on the weather as well with your thoughts on any issues via the text line 0438922936. That number 0438922936. First up, blueberry rust has proven to be a huge burden for blueberry growers around the nation, especially organic growers. Its prevalence has caused growers to be blocked from the South Australian market due to biosecurity measures. Organic blueberry grower at Berry Blue Farm in Bridport, Stuart Millwood, says it's been tough on his operations with pallets of blueberries waiting in the cool room to be sent out and he says there's no shortage of blueberries at the moment.
2: There's a real glut of fruit on the market, especially Melbourne, Sydney, um, from around the Coffs Harbour region. So their their season's been delayed oh, three to four weeks, I'm hearing. So there's, there's yeah, a real glut at the moment. So we've sent some fruit Uh, early in the season like a a week or two ago and we've got some more to go now but we're just sort of waiting to hear back on more prices before we actually send a little bit more in yeah
4: blueberry rust is also affecting the market could you tell me how that's going for you
2: yeah so at the moment like because of the the gladder fruit from new south wales i think it's it's right across the country so the the rust at the moment and our restriction into south australia is not exactly affecting us at the moment but in a few weeks once the the glut of fruit sort of eases and then our organic fruit can't go into South Australia but um it's sort of I don't know at, at the moment I think we wouldn't have had they're still getting low prices in Adelaide anyway at the moment so it's it's right across the country so all we can do is hope the next week or two that things start to ease up and the prices sort of increase a bit Mm -hmm. We can usually, you know, we just send all our fruit over there and they can just take as much as we can send, but at the moment we're sort of getting pallets of fruit packed up and ready to go and we're holding them for a a couple of days or, yeah, even sometimes a few more just to wait and see where we're going to send them because we sort of... You just wait to hear um, for the best price from a bad market at the moment, really, so it's...
4: Because South Australia, they don't have many blueberries there as you were telling me so they were quite a big business partner for you
2: yeah they were the industry over there's it's um quite small but it is growing um so all we can hope for is that you know their industry grows like the rest of the country has and then either um they get these two organic sprays we can use on our fruit and then we can access their market again or they end up with blueberry rust and then it'll be open slather trading again right across the country.
4: You're an organic operation here and so currently you don't have any protection against blueberry rust that you can use, but yeah, tell me what's what's in motion at the moment.
2: Yeah, so the Tasmanian Institute Institute of Agriculture um, are currently working on a project. They're coming up with two, we need two alternate sprays to use in a program to be able to get us uh, access to the South Australian market so I haven't heard any updates on that for a little while but hopefully it's still getting worked on behind the scenes and um, it'd be great if next year they they were approved and ready for use (laughs) then we can sort of get back to normal but yeah we're just waiting on a season where we've got plenty of fruit this year which is really good but then the markets are down a little bit so we're just hoping that one day everything aligns and we'll have a good year at some point, but we'll just keep ticking over until then.
4: I hope so too. And talking about the South Australian market, how yeah, how much of a chunk of your business was that when you were able to export to them?
2: Oh, we sent 90% of the fruit there. Wow. Yeah, 90% easy. We'd have a few. We'd sell a, a little bit locally and then into Melbourne, a few oh, a pallet every week into Melbourne, but everything else... Went to Adelaide, yeah. So we're we're really affected. Uh, we're only a small grower, but we're really affected. And now we're sort of we've got other agents in Sydney and Melbourne, but at the moment their their prices are pretty average. So we're just holding out. We sent some to Perth last week, um, but it it was good at the start, and then they got a big shipment of New South Wales fruit in there and brought everything back down. So it was ended up only being an average shipment, but you got to try these things, I suppose.
4: Yeah, and so blueberry rust, you, you're lucky to not have had to deal with it yet, but um, what what are the risks of it and how does it affect your plant?
2: Yeah, so we've been pretty lucky to avoid it so far. Um, I guess it's just a matter of time before it ends up on everyone's property, but with a bit of luck, if you, you always uh, try and encourage all your pickers to wear fresh, clean clothes each day and... Try and ensure they haven't been on another blueberry farm Uh, in, well, especially in New South Wales, but uh, other areas of Tassie, it's quite prevalent. So you just, yeah, fresh, clean clothes, make sure you have a, we have a metho and water mixed bath. we get them to go through. Um, And other than that, like, there's not a whole lot you can do, but if if you do get it, I think in bad cases it. Your plant will defoliate and lose all its leaves, uh, and then that in, uh, affects your, the next year's crop. Yes, yeah, because you, uh, they won't form fruit buds through the autumn. Um, so yeah, if you if you get it, it just um, cycles year on year, and I think it, gradually it will um, make your orchard unproductive. Mm. But in Tassie, there's if you've got deciduous bushes, you. Generally, in the winter when they lose their leaves, it breaks the cycle. There's some evergreen or semi-evergreen or semi-deciduous uh, varieties that it can overwinter on, and that was the problem. And that's why it will be carried over from one year to the next. Mm. But if you're if you're fully deciduous orchard, um, it generally you won't see it the next season. Hopefully that's um, a good sign and because there was quite a lot of infected properties last year, but uh, I haven't heard if, if it's reoccurred this season or not, but hopefully it's cleared up from those properties.
1: That's Breadport Organic Blueberry Grower Stuart Millwood talking there about blueberry rust with Madeleine Rajan and also the glut of blueberries on the market at the moment. Good for consumers, not so good for growers. Well, when we talk about seaweed in Australian agriculture, the context is usually around the ability to reduce methane emissions in cattle and sheep. But that's only one species of seaweed. A University of Queensland study has explored the future potential of seaweed farming across the globe. It's found a lot more possibilities than just for cattle and sheep. Lucy Cooper reports.
5: Often when we think about the future of sustainable agriculture production, we discuss the prospect of diminishing arable land. But what about arable ocean area for crops like seaweed? PhD candidate Scott Spilius from UQ's School of Earth and Environmental Science explored the role seaweed farming has as a tool for sustainability and its impact on the balance between land and sea.
6: The analysis we did showed that probably around 650 million hectares of the ocean would be suitable for seaweed farming. I mean, that's around 2% of the global ocean. Um, A lot more of that could be you could use, you could grow seaweed in. So we looked at 34 species, um, species that are commonly used these days for things like food, feed, and fuel. Um, There's thousands of other species that uh, we didn't look at, and that's just because there's not as much data on them. Um, So I imagine if we looked at those, we might find that the area of ocean is even bigger. But the 2% we found that's suitable for seaweed farming could support Um, at least one of those 34 species and it also um, those places uh, would be suitable in the sense that you could put a seaweed farm there and wouldn't be too difficult so these places aren't in the middle of the ocean right so they're near ports they don't have um, really rough um, ocean conditions things like that
5: Mr Spilius says seaweed has a huge potential as a critical crop not just as a methane reducing agent but across the entire food and fibre industry. His study found that if you substituted 10% of human diets globally with seaweed products, the development of 110 million hectares of land for farming could be prevented.
6: We can use seaweed for heaps of other things, so we can obviously eat it ourselves, and so probably many people are familiar with having seaweed in their sushi, but um, these days people are starting to incorporate it into um, other foods, um, in the same way that we might process corn or soy, we can process seaweed to extract, you know, specific nutrients or, or proteins, things like that. Um, so the, we can feed it to animals and we can also use it to produce biofuels, things like ethanol or biodiesel. Um, and at the moment, there's kind of economic barriers to doing from these things, but there's a lot of research into how we can make these processes more economic, more efficient.
5: Despite the huge coastal area Australia has, it's not the main seaweed-producing country. Indonesia is, and it's where the potential lies.
6: Indonesia has a huge seaweed industry already, and they also, um, in our analysis, show up as probably the top country in terms of that potential. Um, they have the largest share of that 650 million hectares I talked about. But Australia is up there as well. So I think Australia is in the second spot and then many other countries come and count kind of after that. So Australia has a huge amount of potential as well.
5: Let's take a deeper dive into the Indonesian industry and meet Madeline Grist. Ms Grist recently travelled to South Sulawesi to explore the seaweed industry and did so with the Crawford Fund, a national support organisation for international agricultural research.
7: So Indonesia produces... About 66% of the hydrocolloid seaweeds, which are so your carrageenan bearing seaweeds. So carrageenan is like a gelling agent product. So it's used in a lot of pharmaceuticals, and you'll find it especially in your um, vegan ice creams because it is substitute for uh, gelatin. So that production is really booming. It's very much an established industry over there, whereas in Australia, it is not yet an established industry. Seaweed is definitely a very low value crop. So in Indonesia, it's while these farmers are earning a lot more money than they would say fishing or um, with their lobster pots um, at the moment, because it is such an in-demand crop, they don't earn a lot for the amount for each kilo of seaweed for the amount of labour that they have to put into it and there is no uh, mechanisation at the moment.
5: Bringing it back to Australia, Scott Spilius' study found that expanding seaweed farming could help reduce demand for terrestrial crops and reduce global agricultural greenhouse gas emissions by up to 2.6 billion tonnes of CO2 equivalent per year. But this cannot be achieved if we don't start treating seaweed as a crop, just like wheat.
6: Certainly, terrestrial crops have undergone thousands of years of domestication, and people have selected for the traits that they want. And so, those, those are the, the crops with the big, nutritious uh, fruits that we use today. Um, and seaweed just hasn't received as much attention. So, obviously, people have been using seaweed um, in coastal communities for thousands of years, but um, we, we haven't. A lot of that has been Kind of wild harvesting and there has been a lot less focus on this kind of domestication and so that's something where there's a huge amount of potential Um, and I think that's something that once that process starts to happen it's going to make um, the seaweed industry just a lot more uh, viable both economically but also um, from a sustainability perspective.
5: In terms of the future of the industry, Economic roadblocks must be overcome in order to progress the industry further.
6: Economics of it are, are a barrier. Um, you know, the reality is the sea is the ocean is a pretty hostile environment for humans for things that the humans make, um, and so there is a lot of risk with building seaweed farms um, and you know maintaining them. And that's why it's going to really be important for selecting the right areas in which to in which to farm seaweeds, and also for you know developing more resilient materials for being in the ocean. Right now there are these economic barriers, but those are going to start to go away as we develop the technologies yeah, to kind of push humanity more further out into the ocean.
1: SPHC candidate Scott Spilius from UK's School of Earth and Environmental Science, fin- finishing that report by Lucy Cooper on the future of farming seaweed for multiple uses. Coming up on the Country Hour, the forestry industry in the state looks at the challenges of providing the amount of timber required to build the number of houses wanted.
8: Available now on ABC Listen. Enjoy our library of great Aussie audiobooks all summer long. Free to stream on the ABC Listen app with a collection of fiction and non-fiction titles including The Messenger by Marcus Suzak.
9: Now hang on a second. Marv's getting all offended again. Since you're holding up the bank, the least you can do is pay my parking fine, don't you think?
8: A great range of ABC audiobooks, free to stream on the ABC Listen app.
0: It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: Yeah, preparations underway in the north of the States at uh, Westbury at a special property there for the three-day Mountain Cattlemen's Association event. It's back on after a couple of years uh, being affected by COVID. So we'll take you there a little bit later in the program. But the government's promise to build 10,000 new affordable homes by 2032 is good news for the forest industry, says Nick Steele, the CEO of Tasmanian Forest Products Association. And that equates to around three houses a day, all of which will need various kinds of timber sourced from Tasmania. However, it comes as forestry faces major challenges of its own, including workforce shortages and logistics issues.
8: So we certainly believe it's a big target and something that is desperately needed in Tasmania right now. Um, to get serious about social housing requires big targets, but it also brings us back to the realisation that many people who support solutions for homelessness and the cost of living fail to realise that it'll be forestry who provides this, as all housing requires wood and lots of it. So we're fortunate in Tasmania because we have uh, lots of wood here, whereby we can actually provide things like uh, sock for the framing, uh, the hardwoods for floors and windows um, and that that's really even without going into a lot of the other packaging and paper products as well.
10: What do you mean that people fail to realise?
8: Well I think that there's critics out there in terms of where they don't see forestry as a solution and one of the solutions we believe was we can actually provide the timber and wood, wooden products for, for housing. Um, we're also a solution in terms of climate change, in terms of uh, storing carbon Let's
10: step back a bit to COVID, which really highlighted a state and national, for that matter, labour shortage in terms of builders. And not only that, but a global shortage of wood. There were shipping issues. There was problems with China. What happened during COVID?
8: Yes, if you go back to 2020, um, the big thing, I suppose, COVID really stifled trade. And one of the issues there for Australia in particular was we rely on 20, 25% of our timber and wooden products um, to meet our demands, and that stopped so when that stopped um, on top of the de- of the demand due to the home builder so that was the federal government stimulus package it saw timber shortages and delays so that that was a really big issue going through that plus as you said, labor um, not only then but now is becoming a big issue as well so and that's that's a shortage I think across many of the industries at the moment as well so we're facing some, uh, I suppose, issues which have flowed on from COVID.
10: And considering that, how will the industry be able to step up to meet this 10,000 homes by now in nine years, 2032?
8: Well, I think the the biggest, the challenge I suppose for industries is the confidence, and that's the confidence to invest in long-term projects to to grow their businesses. And by providing this pledge of 10,000 new homes, um, we're seeing, I suppose, a commitment by the government for housing construction. And that's really a signal that demand for high-quality Tasmanian timber is going to continue. So that's a big positive. And for the industry, uh, we're ready to provide that in timber products essential for the construction of new homes.
10: Has the government committed to buying local products?
8: Well, there is a... um, state government wood encouragement policy, and that's based on the fact that um, government departments will consider uh, timber and wood as part of that package, I suppose, when they're looking at bigger projects. So I suppose it really comes back to um, the industry to really push that policy and to make sure that those social and affordable homes, a big part of those homes will be timber.
10: Just thinking about the logistics of it all, as you said before, it's not just... Construct framing that that uses wood. It's laminate. It's uh, speciality timbers, bench tops, things that take um, pretty specialised skills. How are the how is the industry ready to take on an increased demand in these things? I mean, people don't just come out of out of the woodwork, so to say.
8: No, no, pardon the pun. Um, now, in terms of, I suppose we have a skilled workforce now. There's no doubt about that. We have the issue uh, is that is getting new skilled people in an industry. So really, I suppose for employers, it's really the retention of their current workforce, but then it's up to industry to really promote positively um, the industry. So I suppose we put the pitch out there, if you're looking for a a new job in 2023, consider forestry. So there's a range of different careers you can look at from conservation, silviculture, fire, carbon, farm forestry, harvesting, it goes on. So there really is a job for everyone in forestry. Um, it's not just when people think of forestry, they think of people harvesting trees. There's so much more to it. Um, so for us, we need to promote our industry more to make sure we can build those jobs to meet to meet the demand.
10: So when you say the industry is ready, you don't mean it's uh, it's going to start now? It's still got some challenges to overcome?
8: Well, we, yes, yeah, there's always challenges to overcome, but in saying that... Uh, as an industry, we're working together to actually promote our workforce um, to promote to look at people actually getting into forestry. So, in saying that we're ready, we're um, we're trying as hard as we can, like I'm sure most industries are, to get new people into their into their sector.
10: Does the Tasmanian industry produce enough for this project, or will they also need external wood?
8: Oh, in terms of. Uh, Meeting the demand, there's no doubt we can meet the demand. Um, it obviously all comes down to the the businesses um, who might be looking at to actually procure that uh, contract with the government. But uh, we're always looking to grow with in the industry. And when we're actually talking about growing it, certainly from our plantation sector, it must happen on private. And a big part of that is landowners and the farmers. So we call on farmers to consider farm forestry um, as a way to diversify their estate and obviously add to the benefit of
1: meeting this pledge. Tasmanian Forest Products Association CEO Nick Steele talking to Meg Powell there, saying extra demand from the government's pledge to build 10,000 houses is a welcome challenge for the forestry industry, but they need the wood. Well, former federal independent MP for Indi and farmer Cathy McGowan AO has been appointed the new chairperson of AgriFutures. The Research Development Corporation looks after 13 agricultural industries from chicken, meat, rice, bees and th- thoroughbred horses. Ms McGowan hopes to address skill shortages in agriculture and encourages all students finishing school to consider further study in agriculture. She spoke to Annie Brown about her new role.
11: I was very keen to to become the chair and absolutely delighted that the Minister and the Department um, have appointed me. So that really good and the reason why I really am keen to be doing this job for 3 years is that I believe agriculture is just so important for the future of Australia and it's our rural communities that underpin the success of ag and I am really interested in how we continue to grow and support our rural communities we get workforce that we need we get the education we need we get the health services we need and then as well grow the jobs which come out of agriculture. And so I don't don't know if you you knew this, Annie, but 93% of Australian agriculture uh, produces 93% of all the food that's consumed in Australia, and then 70% of our agricultural product, product is exported. And that's worth $64 billion, you know, plus a year. So it's a really important industry, and I'm... Just, I've always loved it. I've grown up on a farm, worked in agriculture all my life. So I'm really keen now to be chair of this just wonderful future-directed research and development corporation.
10: So yeah, so AgriFutures is research development corporation. But how would you describe to people what exactly it, it does mm. for farmers?
11: Like- so it's, it's it's an excellent question. So there are <clears throat> there are 15. Research and Development Corporations. So they basically cover off the major agricultural industries like people who know about grains or dairy, (coughs) excuse me, or MLA, which does meat and Australian wool innovation. So AgriFutures does the rural part of the research and development and it's also responsible for smaller uh, industries that don't have their own big R&D group. So, for example, um, AgriFutures looks after bees, uh, rice, pasture seeds um, and lots of lots others, lots of others as well. So it works with the industry to set priorities, to help do the research and the extension, teaching people about it. But also it does new industries coming up. So if someone's got an interest, say, for example, in sesame seed, uh, futures would do the beginning work on how that industry would grow. So they're currently working on sesame seed, uh, seaweed, uh, native pastures, which is really important, truffles even. So they pick up new industries as they come through.
10: How's AgriFutures funded? Is it government funded or levy funded?
11: It's, it's, yeah, it's a mixture. It has government funding. Uh, it has levy funding. So the cotton industry, not the cotton, sorry, uh, rice industry, the rice growers put money in as part of their levies and the bee growers, so there's levies. But then there's also um, industry partnerships. So uh, AgriFutures works with other groups and they they put their money in together. So, there's sort
1: of three main forms of funding there. Yeah. It's Kathy McGowan, the new chairperson for AgriFuture, speaking to Annie Brown. Still to come on the country hour. We'll take you to the gathering of Mountain Cattlemen's Association in North Tasmania. Richard Bailey will, will be along to check the latest on the mainland and Tasmanian livestock markets, and we'll take a look at the weather as well in just a moment. First up, the news headlines with Loretta Loiberger.
0: Good afternoon, Tony. Tasmania will be the first state in the country to trial a new statewide rural GP training model. Announced today, the model means registrars training to become GPs will keep their entitlements, even if they jump between practices. Trainee GPs in rural areas will be employed by the state instead of the Commonwealth, making salary and entitlements comparable to doctors working in hospitals. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese says it will make general practice a more attractive career Career path. A constitutional law expert says the voice to Parliament won't affect a push for First Nations sovereignty as some Indigenous leaders fear. Yesterday, a number of speakers, including the Greens' Lydia Thorpe, urged supporters at Invasion Day rallies to vote against The Voice at this year's referendum. Professor of Law at the University of New South Wales, George Williams, says campaigns for a treaty and The Voice referendum can run at the same time. Pioneering Tasmanian ABC cinematographer Dorothy Hallam has died aged 97. Between 1961 and 1983, Hallam filmed 176 stories for ABC News and is considered the first female camera operator to shoot film for the organisation. More news at one.
1: Time now to check the latest on the weather. Luke Johnston joins us from the Bureau. day, Luke.
12: Good afternoon Tony, how are you going?
1: Yeah, going well. On a, it's a pretty good looking day out there. A bit of cloud though, a bit of uh, sun, a bit of everything.
12: A yeah. little bit of cloud, somewhere between a partly cloudy and a mostly sunny. Uh, probably erring more towards the partly cloudy for, for the north of the state. There's a bit of cloud banking up about the uh, higher ground in the in the northwest and the northeast, so partly cloudy in Lonfest at the moment. Generally a pretty warm day. Uh, no huge rainfall uh, reported to 9am, but there was a, about uh, two or three millimetres at uh, St Helens this morning or overnight and uh, about two millimetres at Burnie coming onshore in the northwest. For the rest of today, not much rain is expected, although there will be some light showers uh, coming onshore into the northwest and about high ground in the northeast for the remainder of the day, not expecting it to add up to too much. Into tomorrow, we'll see those light showers continue about the northeast and the northwest, mostly about higher ground, but it starts to become hotter elsewhere with temperatures in the south expected to reach uh, the high 20s or, or low 30s. With that, we'll see the northerly winds increase to... Around uh, 30 to 40 kilometres per hour at, uh, at most uh, and uh, combined with the hot temperatures we're seeing uh, elevated fire dangers. So a lot of Tasmanian districts tomorrow have high fire danger uh, but no fire weather warning at this stage although we are getting closer and closer to seeing one of those.
1: Yeah we haven't had one all summer yet have we a total fire ban?
12: Yeah, that's right. We've had a very, uh, very uh, slow drying of the, the fuels and it's a sort of a combination of the, the ground taking, ground and fuel taking a long time to dry out. But also we've swapped from the old MacArthur fire danger rating model to the Australian fire danger rating system this year. So this fire season is the first one uh, with the AFDRS. So you might have noticed the signs in the streets and everywhere have changed the, the rating scale. There's now only a moderate, high, extreme and catastrophic
1: Okay, out with the old and in with the new. Goodbye, MacArthur.
12: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, well, apparently it was developed in the 1960s and hasn't really been tuned much since. So it's good that we've got a a nice new system that can be tweaked with the the latest and greatest science.
1: All right. Now, um, the outlook after uh, that hot weather tomorrow, uh, what can we expect?
12: Well, cold front uh, tomorrow afternoon, evening, sweeping across the west and south, it's going to flush out the hottest weather. We're looking at seeing temperatures in the south uh, returning to the low 20s, so not a significantly cold change but after saturday's 30 it will certainly feel like a cool change it's not going to flush out the hot weather from the north so launceston looking at 29 on saturday 28 on sunday and then uh holding on to 29 on monday tuesday and wednesday next week so certainly some some warmth uh coming and sticking around for the north but there will be at least some relief from that over the south behind tomorrow's front
1: the mental picture of launceston holding on to those temperatures
12: yeah just <laughs> holding on the the good news is with the the warmer temperatures it's now become uh, fairly usual or fairly common for both this time of the year in Tasmania and for the recent 30 day period so we don't have a heat wave warning just a low intensity heat wave this one
1: okay and um, any rainfall of any note on the horizon for the next week
12: uh, there, there might be a few showers around, uh, well, there will be a few showers around with the cold front crossing a Saturday afternoon evening, but it really falls over as it gets here. So don't expect more than, say, five millimetres at most across the state with that front, uh, less likely about the Midlands, southeast and east coast. And then next chance of rainfall will be the front coming, or next chance of you know moderate rainfall will be the next front coming uh, Wednesday or Thursday next week.
1: Beauty. Sounds good. Uh, warnings, what have we got?
12: Warnings, we've got a strong wind warning today for uh, for lower eastern waters from Wineglass Bay to southeast Cape, including all southeast inshore waters apart from the Derwent Estuary and also the central west coast. Have a strong wind warning for all eastern, southern and western waters from Wineglass Bay around to uh, Sandy Cape and also for Storm Bay tomorrow.
1: And for those going boating today and over the weekend, what's it going to be like?
12: All right, well, becoming windier uh, today at least, north to northeasterly, 15 to 25 knots, reaching up to 30 knots about the southeast during this afternoon and the central west at night tonight. tomorrow, so north to northeasterly winds, 20 to 30 knots, lighter about the north, shifting westerly during the afternoon and decreasing to 10 to 20 knots in the evening as that front sort of makes its way through. The swell west and south today, two and a half to three metres uh, west to southwesterly, decaying to around two and a half metres during the afternoon and persisting through tomorrow. Through Bath Strait or westerly to around one metre offshore today, decreasing slightly tomorrow and uh, the east coast uh, southerly one to two metres tending southwesterly two to three metres offshore in the south also decreasing tomorrow. Tomorrow we'll also have a uh, northeasterly building to around one metre during the course of the day. Significant wave height in the west coast 2.8 metres at the moment and off the east coast just over one metre.
1: Okay, Luke, and just a quick question without notice. Do you think if the MacArthur system was still in, we would have had a total fire ban tomorrow?
12: Potentially i 'd say tomorrow is probably the closest we 've been every day every time we get a day like tomorrow, like a, a hot, dry day it 's uh, become closer and closer, but we still we still run the numbers internally to have a quick look to see what it would have been just to make sure we 're not missing anything and uh, it, it could be uh, very close tomorrow if it were the old system
1: okay i've won the bet. Good on you mm-hmm. thank you Luke <laughs> <laughs> Luke Johnston from the Bureau with the latest information.
0: Coast to coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: Well, after a hiatus of a couple of years because of COVID, the annual get-together of the Tasmanian Cattlemen's Association begins this afternoon at Westbury. Our reporter Madeline Rojan is actually on the property in Birrile Road at Westbury with more details of the event.
4: Alright, thanks Tony. So I'm just here with Stephen Byer, the President of the Tasmanian Mountain Cattlemen's Association. Stephen, tell me, what's in front of us right now?
13: Well, we've got the cattle in front of us here, which is going to be part of our challenge, which is part of our main event. Uh, It's the cattle handling, which is one of the main sections, which goes back to when the um, mountain cattlemen used to drive the cattle up and put them on the high country and then round them up and bring them back. Right. So that's just one part of our event.
4: Yeah, so it's the 34th get-together um, and you haven't been around for a couple of years. Tell me, how is it to be back?
13: It's good. It's really good. A lot of work, a lot of work, but we're, we're, yeah, we're really looking forward to it. We just hope that we get the people to, yeah, to support us. So. Yeah. And,
4: and how much um, preparation has gone into an event like this? You, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people here, lads, today.
13: Yes, there is, there is will be, and yeah, there's been a lot of going into the preparation of it. Um, yeah, the work behind it. People just don't realise how much work there is involved for a volunteer organisation. Yeah. Yeah.
4: yeah. Um. And what kind of things can we expect over the weekend? It's a three-day event, am I right?
13: It's a three day event this year, we're starting at three o'clock this afternoon. The gates opened at nine o'clock this morning. We're starting at three o'clock with a um, pretty good barrel race event. Um, so we hope that goes well, then that will be followed by some whip cracking and then also we're having a dog jump, uh, which, is, yeah, which will be in the main arena so people can come around and watch that today. Yeah.
4: So it's not just cattle today?
13: No, no cattle today. The cattle will be tomorrow, um, which then is the main, yeah, the main get-gather event. Which we, but we've just got them in the yards now, just calming them down with the people around them so they don't get spooked and go yeah. silly like that.
4: <laughs> um, and, and how big of an event is this for the community and the people who are part of the association?
13: It's a big event for us, the part of the association. It's our only event, we only run it once a year. We've had two years off with COVID, um, so it's good to be back. Um, we did run a couple of small events, just one-day events, why COVID was on, because we had to cut down the volume of people. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, no, we're really wrapped to be back.
4: Yeah, great. Um, and you're not um, taking part anymore, but what are you looking forward to over the weekend?
13: I just hope... I just like seeing people enjoy themselves especially younger people. Like, if we don't get the younger people to keep coming up, stepping up, organisations like this will just fizz out. Like, mm-hmm. I remember I used to go to a lot of picnic races and and they've all gone now. So there's there's not much other events like this run in Tassie now, only rodeos, which is separate to this altogether.
4: Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. And I do see there were some events that were for the younger participants, like... Even going under 13, is that right?
13: Yes, we have a striplings, um, which are for young people. Then we go up into juniors and then we go up into seniors. So with the striplings, you can have the parents leading them around and helping them. Um, And that's what it's all about, trying to get them from real young to come up and keep running stuff like this and enjoying themselves.
4: Well I wish you and everyone who comes today a really exciting weekend but we better shoot back to Tony. Um yeah, so Tony, that's all for today. Back to you.
1: Thank you. Madeline Rogan talking to Steve By, the president of the Tasmanian Mountain Cattlemen's Association, about the annual three-day get-together back this year after the disruption from COVID at the Harveydale property in Birrlee Road up in Westbury. Uh, and Steve By was talking there about the importance of having young competitors at the three-day event. Now it's back to Madeline, who has two of those younger competitors ready to talk to.
4: And I've got Gemma and Marley King here as well. Gemma is just 14 and we've got Marley who's 12 and they'll be competing this weekend. So, yeah, Marley, just tell me, what will you be competing in this weekend?
3: Um, So we've got a championship held tomorrow on the Saturday. Um, There's four sections of it. So you've got the whip crack, you've got the cow handling, you've got the... Um, time trial and the handy stock horse. The time trial is part of the final part, and we've got the. what's the other one it? The mountain horse is the other one. Um, so you've got activities in them, so you've got obstacles with the cows to get them through. You step them over a pole, you push them through a gate. In um, the handy stock horse, there's bridges, so you've got to ride your horse over. Um, you drag uh, drag bag Um, yeah so there's a lot of different things (laughs) in there
4: there's a lot going on it sounds like and Gemma what about you are they sort of similar um, activities and events
14: yeah so I'll be in the same um, section as Marley competing in all these parts and we'll also have some novelty events that Marley and I will have a crack at and we'll have heaps of other people who can come and join
4: Gemma, are there many other people around your age, Any many younger people competing? Uh, we get a few, so I think we have quite a few
14: junior competitors and there is four stripling competitors this year, so
4: that's pretty good. Cool. And how, how long have you both been doing this for? Marley?
3: Um, well, our <laughs> first time coming to catamans, I
4: was about six.
3: Um, and our first ever thing here at Catamans was the billy can race, so <laughs> that was pretty fun, yeah.
4: Cool. What does a billy can race involve?
3: So you ride your horse up to a drum. The drum um, has a bucket of water in it. You carry up your billy can, you fill your billy can up with water, and you ride back, and whoever's got the most water
4: in the end ends up winning, yeah. That sounds tough. Um, and, Gemma, have you been doing this about since you are six as well, or...? Yeah, around that age.
14: So when Marley and I started, we were on the lead rain and had a lot of fun here and grew our interests. So,
4: yeah. Cool. And I've also heard that you're going, you've applied for quite a big competition. It may be the biggest cattleman's um, competition in Australia. Tell me what that is, Um, Marley. Um, so that's the man from snow
3: river um you've got striplings again so that's 13 and under i'll be competing in that Gemma's a junior that's 14 to 18 i think yeah so there's it's a pretty tough competition considering you've got to apply to it to be able to get in so we're fingers crossed we're getting in
5: yeah
4: and Gemma, when do you find out um when when you get in
14: uh, so I'm pretty sure we find out if we get in on the 8th of February, but yeah, it's a pretty big competition considering we've got to get on the boat and go to Corium. so it should be good fun if we get in.
4: Yeah, well, good luck to both of you, and I've just heard from the President of the TMCA, Steve, that a lot of them will be going if you get in, they'll be catching the boat over <laughs> to support you. So thanks for joining me today.
3: That's all good. Thank you for coming
4: thanks for having us. cool thanks thanks um, to these two back to you, Tony
1: yeah, thank you, Madeleine Roanne from Westbury at the property. Harvey Dale talking there to Gemma and Marley King, two keen and enthusiastic young competitors. A couple of promising juniors. They're getting ready to compete in the three-day event and also looking further down the track to a big meeting on the mainland. So good luck to them. I hope they have a great weekend. Now, if you need any more details about the get-together of the Mountain Cattlemen's Association, just go to the website. All the details are there for the weekend event. Well, sustainable fashion is a growing market as young consumers demand more information about how their clothes are made. Now, the Australian wool industry has partnered with a French company to manufacture running shoes that are biodegradable and made from 100% recyclable materials. John Roberts, CEO of Australian Wool Innovation, says Gen Z want to buy sustainable footwear.
15: This partnership uh, it's quite an exciting one, actually. I mean, <clears throat> you know, wool shoes and wool sneakers and wool runners aren't necessarily that new. We've been working on them for <clears throat> the best part of a decade or more. Um but what was interesting about this one was the, the um Circle Sportswear are, are very much a you know a, a sustainably sustainability focused brand. Um and that's their very much their, their daily mantra. And the exciting thing was they came to us and they recognised us as a sustainability partner because we have a natural biodegradable fibre which aligns with their, their ethos, if you like. So that was that was um exciting in the first instance. In terms of what it means for wool growers is I think you know, in the past, there had as I say, there have been shoes with wool uppers. This is a, an entirely biodegradable shoe um, with a with a very, very you know, significant wool component in it. Um, and for these, particularly in the northern hemisphere, these these sort of very sustainably minded consumers are looking for a shoe that can do all of those things. Be the complete package in terms of biodegradability. So, it's a it's an awareness piece. It's a, it's a it's a demand driving piece. So I think it's it's very good for wool growers.
9: And do you think there's a lot of growth amongst environmentally minded consumers, particularly in Europe?
15: Oh, absolutely. <clears throat> we think that um, you know, particularly the Gen Zs who are going to be our biggest biggest customer in the, within the next eight to ten years. Uh, that's that's very much front and center for for that consumer, and that's that's who we need to engage with.
9: So far, I've looked on the website, only uh, 268 pairs have been pre-ordered for delivery in 2024, so it looks like it's, it's still a niche part and it could be some way off before there's a, there's a big market for this uh, demand for, for Merino uh, in, in these shoes.
15: Yeah, I think so. Look, it, it, you know, we, I think it's important to manage your expectations here. It's, it's, it's really exciting and it's, it's a very innovative uh, company uh and they've got a lot i mean the, the people in that company have a lot of history uh in in the in the sportswear shoe industry uh and they've really started started this startup brand and and there's a lot of eyes on them so this is an awareness piece as much as as much as anything in the first instance when they're available try a pair i think um they 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 are coming online i think they're available online i'm not sure if they're available in australia yet but uh, We'll be certainly working with the brand to make sure they are um and i think uh you know whilst they might not necessarily look like a lot of wool it's important to understand that there's about 350 um, grams per square meter in, in in the fabric that goes into that shoe upper and to give you an idea it's about 120 grams you know in a, in a piece of uh worsted suiting so it might not look like a lot of wool in terms of meters but there's actually quite a lot of wool in the fight in the fabric itself so um Yeah, I think it's a good progression for us.
9: The other key issue for consumers and Australian wool growers is this push in the EU to regulate uh, the labelling on clothing that would rate the product environmental footprint for these garments. There's a concern that the draft approach would have seen wool rated worse than uh, synthetic competitors. Where's that process at the moment?
15: Uh, Well, look, we, we remain at the table of the Sustainable Apparel Coalition um and we, we we're very much involved in ensuring that wool's eco credentials are are not m- misrepresented um, the the rollout of the PEF standards has been has been put back again there's there's an acknowledgement now that um probably microplastics need to be part of that consideration and i think there's a growing acknowledgement amongst the uh the people who are developing that methodology that we also need to look what happens to the garment after it's been dispensed with, um, which, which under the current methodology, it doesn't take into consideration.
9: Do you think the fact that it's now been pushed back is a good thing for the wool industry? Absolutely.
15: I, I, I've got no doubt that uh, the work that we've done and the papers we've submitted uh, on behalf of Australian wool growers has had a, had a direct impact, probably the direct impact, on why, why some of this has been delayed.
1: That's the CEO of Australian Wool Innovation, John Roberts. Talking there to Josh Becker about the wool running shoes manufactured by a French company from Australian wool, of course.
0: It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: You might feel a little bit sheepish running. In those running shoes. Uh, time now to check the livestock markets with Richard Bailey. How are you, Richard?
16: Afternoon, Tony. Going very well.
1: Excellent. And uh, the cattle markets this week, what did you get out of it?
16: Um, a little bit cheaper again across the board. In some markets earlier in the week, I probably should should mention, well, obviously, most avatars had a short week. Some worked yesterday, but most had a short week. And obviously there were no sales yesterday, so it's disrupted things just slightly. But cattle numbers generally were down a little bit on on particularly the big sales on Monday. Uh, Prices were back a little bit further again, not as much as they have been. Seems to be a consensus that they're probably near the bottom, I think, now from what people are saying that I'm listening to, but uh, we'll wait and see, I suppose, over the next two or three weeks. Um, It's got to be a pretty good vealer that makes over 400 cents a kilo, a lot of them sort of 370 to 400 cents. A lot of yearlings anywhere from 330 to 380 cents a kilo. As we were saying on Wednesday, our better yearlings at Piranha made over 400 cents. Um, if they attract strong butcher competition, uh, they'll make that sort of money. But if they are just going to be bought by the exporters, processors, they're down around that dollars 3.40, 3.50 cents a kilo. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit tight there. Um, most bullocks are making anywhere from 3.35 to 3.90 cents a kilo. And the cow the best cow the uh, heavy cow market uh is sort of averaging around that two hundred and eighty cents a kilo. There are a few cows, odd cows make over three hundred cents, but not many and then your lighter cows are down around that two forty to two sixty cents a kilo with most of them going back to the paddock. Um, seasons are still pretty good right through the eastern states It'll be interesting to see what happens if we happen to get a dry autumn you know for instance in parts of Victoria or parts of New South Wales or Queensland for that matter. It would be interesting to see if that makes any difference to everything going around. Um, The other interesting thing I think we're all waiting on is just to see where our export markets are heading. Um, Dollars getting a little bit stronger by the day and um, probably making it a little bit harder for exporters. And I think that from what I understand is there are um, a number of, of, of freezers and chillers around the world that are full of both beef, lamb and mutton at the moment.
1: Okay. A bit different at this time last year. It's always interesting to look back on 12 months, isn't it?
16: Yeah. You've got to remember this time last year we were at extremes, extreme highs. Um, I think, you know, we've got to be really careful we take that into consideration. Um, But, uh, yeah, you know, obviously it's cheaper than this time last year. I think um, there are a lot of pretty good over-the-hooks prices for cattle at the moment still. I mean they're not as not as strong as they were, but they're still very very strong, particularly our our two local uh, farmers' um, grass-fed products, um, and both supermarkets. You know they're, they're pretty good pretty good over the hooks prices. So um, I think uh, I don't think we're in any any dire straits yet.
1: Okay, now lamb and mutton. Uh, lamb okay, but mutton not so.
16: Uh, But but, but the lamb market is in two sections, totally two sections. The really good, um, well-finished, generally shorn, uh, lambs weighing between 24 and up and over 30 kilos are selling exceptionally well right across the board, right across eastern Australia, um, 800 to 840 or 50 cents a kilo. I don't think anyone picked that. Um, I think we all thought that lambs would be cheaper than that at this time of the year but if i are not in that category they're very quickly down to 600 650 cents um, there's a number of overhooked prices in the sort of close to mid 700s um, for those sort of medium weight trade type lambs um, but uh, there are millions, well not millions, hundreds of thousands of Unfinished woolly lambs in markets right across eastern Australia, and they, um, they, are, they they are struggling they're struggling to sell a lot of them going back to the paddock, which isn 't going to help later on. Um, it'll be interesting to see Tony over the next oh, month or six weeks whether or not the numbers of these really good quality lambs build up. you would think they will just at the moment the lamb numbers through the sale yards in in all of um, the eastern states are still pretty low um, and admittedly we didn't have Wagga yesterday but uh, generally speaking you know hamilton on wednesday were a lot lower than we normally have at this time of the year so it'll be interesting to see where that goes as you said mutton sort of almost been in free fall for a while it's sort of steadied a bit during the week a lot of sheep making 250 300 cents a kilo that's in comparison to probably this time last year, 650 cents, about half what the price, mutton price was this time last year. There's most sheep are selling between 50 and 70 dollars a head. Uh, as an odd sheep, you see a heavy sheep in some of the interstate markets that makes over 100 dollars, but very few. We wouldn't have had a, um, a mutton price over 100 dollars in our yards for uh, two months now, so maybe three. Uh, so not so good if you're selling sheep. Um, but uh, that goes down to the fact, I think, that there is a fair bit of a backlog of mutton in chillers and freezers around around the world, either here or on the, on the uh, water. So uh, we'll just have to wait until that backlog finishes. Interesting to note that our mutton killers up up, um, I think, I think I saw the other day, up almost 30%. Our lamb kill is significantly higher. Our Cattle kill is significantly higher than this time last year, so the abattoirs are freed up, which is great. Because if you remember this time last year, uh, we were struggling to get workers. We had COVID through half our works. Uh, we were killing at, you know, fifty percent capacity, etc. So all that's good news. Just a matter of um, freeing up these overseas markets a little bit.
1: Okay, Richard. You have a great weekend. Good on Tony. Yeah, Richard Bailey back with us on The Country Hour next Wednesday to check the latest on the local power renter markets. Don't forget, plenty of great stories on ABC Rural and ABC Rural Facebook page. And that includes the uh, AM to uh, Graham Stevenson. That's on our ABC Rural Facebook page. That's the program for the week. We'll catch you after midday Monday.